Next thing you know, the Hell's Angels pull in. I'm sitting there roasting a hot dog, and all of a sudden, two of them start walking over towards me. Big giants, you know, spikes on them, leather, big beards. And they stop right at my fire, and then one of them says, can I have a hot dog? (laughs) How does our definition of success shape how we live our daily lives? Join me, your host, Michael Bauman, as we learn from some of the top leaders and experts in the world, from CEOs to neuroscientists, Broadway directors, and more, about how to engineer success in every area of our lives. Welcome to Success Engineer. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Success Engineering. I'm your host, Michael Bauman, and I'm excited to announce that at the start of this new year, I am opening up a very limited number of spots for individual one-on-one coaching. So if you're an entrepreneur or just somebody who's looking to optimize every area of your life from your habits to productivity to even your sense of meaning and purpose, I'd love to talk with you. You can go to successengineering.org and book a free 30-minute session with me. I dedicate the maximum amount of my time and my energy in helping my clients succeed, which is why I only take on a very limited number of clients, and I ensure that every single one is a good fit before we actually work together. So if that's of interest to you, go to successengineering.org, book a free 30-minute session. I love to get to know you, hear where you're coming from, and hear how I could potentially transform your life this next year. All right, with that being said, let's jump right back into the show. I have the incredible privilege of having Eric Severson on. His life has is crazy. It's been anything but boring. He's hitchhiked from London to Central Africa. He's driven his motorbike hundreds of thousands of miles on six different continents. He's lived with remote ind- indigenous tribes in the Amazon, has guns stuck in his face in Nigeria. Um, he's actually trained in martial arts by Bruce Lee's best friend. He's managed, managed and grown multiple multi-million dollar companies. He's summited, I mean, it just keeps going on and on, summited the highest peaks in 15 countries and 17 different states. And then he has eight best-selling books that he's written. And I'm just really, really pumped for this conversation. So welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you, Michael. I'm super excited to be here. I, I love your show. I love what you're doing. So I'm happy now to be here talking with you. Absolutely. So, I mean, you started off, you know, from a pretty average middle class family or in, in Tacoma, Washington, and actually, you know, grades weren't so great. You know, you, you, you failed second grade. Um, and can you talk a little bit about that, that beginning story and then also how that transitioned in 11th grade for you and your love of learning and just diving deep into psychology and philosophy kind of came about? Yeah, absolutely. So I was the third of three children. By the time I came along, my parents had helped their kids with homework and done all that. So they were really good parents, but I didn't get a lot of attention from them with my homework. And things didn't come super easy for me, um, where it seemed like other kids, you know, looked at words and could spell them during the spelling bees right away. I didn't, you know, when kids seemed like they could add four plus seven with no effort at all, I found it a little trickier. And so I struggled and it was really, uh, it was a little bit stressful trying to, you know, not make eye contact with my teacher when I didn't know the answers, but I wanted to be engaged. So I wasn't not engaged, but things just didn't come super easily to me. Um, and I liked the second grade. It was actually a choice. Um, the, the school talked with my parents <laughs> and they, they 
said, what should we do here? And they kind of recommended I stayed back, but they, they gave us mm. the option. And I remember my mom and I made a pros and cons list of both. And they were tied with these pros and cons of staying in second grade again or going on to the third grade. And there was a little girl named Becky Isaacson who was going into the second grade. So she was the, the last one on the list to tip the scales. And I think my mom could have, would have been happy with any answer. She wanted me to stay back. So Becky Isaacson made me stay back for, for, for second grade. And then I kept going and kept getting bad grades. And like I said, I wasn't lazy, but I didn't really have a culture of studying um, around me. And got going through, getting, you know, C, C minus grades. And then in my junior year of high school, something clicked. And it was really, Michael, an on-off switch where all of a sudden I decided I want to become a college professor. And it was at psychology at the time. <laughs> and I said to myself, college professors don't get C minuses. And with not that big of a shift in the time I spent studying, my focus in studying changed quite a bit. Of course, I studied more, but I, I went from a C minus average to AA, um, straight A's um, immediately. And then I had missed so much that I was just excited to learn more. I was reading sometimes two books a day, easily 10 books a week at that point. And that lasted for quite a few years. It, the funny thing is when I was in my senior class remedial English classes, because of where my history of grades were, I had read all the books that the AP kids were taking in their advanced placement classes. So they're <laughs> consulting me about these books and tests they're taking over these, you know, The Catcher in the Rye and Of Mice and Men and all these great books that I just read on my own for fun. So that was the first mental shift for me was deciding I wanted to do something special. And for that was college professor and things started to go well. And I kind of naively thought, all right, I'm getting straight A's. So I'm going to get into UCLA. My brother was older than me, my sister. So I remember when they had the half hour appointment in their early senior year about what it's like for their what colleges are available to us, et cetera. My brother came back with brochures in his arms, armfuls of brochures. He ended up going to Stanford undergrad and Harvard for his MBA. And my sister did really well too. So I'm excited for this meeting now. And Miss Albert sits down and she looks at my transcripts, C minuses and then A's. And she says, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to go to UCLA. And she literally said, you will never get into a school like that. Push yourself away from the desk and walked out. I was, no and I didn't know way. if the meeting was over. I thought she might be coming back with some brochures with other colleges, but I sat there kind of just kind of fighting the tears and she never came back. I sat there for half an hour and then oh my I had two choices, listen to her or not. So I didn't. So I applied to UCLA. I didn't apply for any other school. It was my one and only thing. And they rejected me. And so I'm like, uh-oh, no backup plan. I ended up going to community college for two years and um, and getting into UCLA after that two years later. So so I, I kept with my plan, worked hard, and ended up getting to, to UCLA two years after that. So so the 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 things didn't come easy. But when I made a mindset shift and really desired to better myself, then I became a much better student that led to some really good things later in life. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that is really, really crazy. You'd think somebody like that would be like, huh, let me be curious about what happened in 11th grade as opposed to going like, no, you're basically worthless and you're yeah, going to yeah, get it, into exactly. college. <laughs> That is that's really crazy. So we're gonna we're gonna kind of fast forward a little bit. So you you graduated high school. You know your grandmother takes you to Norway to visit. You know the the heritage and stuff. And you end up hiking. You know 
um, hiking and backpacking and stuff all over all over mm-hmm. Europe. And then the next year, you actually do it again. You want to get to Africa. Can you can you kind of set the stage for that story? Mm-hmm. And then also how formative that time was okay. in Africa in terms of your sense of purpose and just overall philosophy for life. Yeah, absolutely. So um, also, even before I was a good student, I, I did I saw that and almost in a naive way, I thought anything was possible. And so even like ice hockey, I, most of the kids up in Washington state who played ice hockey started when they were six or eight years old. When I was, I think 12, 13, I decided I wanted to play ice hockey and everybody said it's impossible because I've, I've missed it. You know, I don't even know how to skate. I went to public skating as many times as it was open during the week, which might've been six or eight times and taught myself how to skate for a year and ended up making it on the junior B team for um, the Tacoma Rangers ice hockey team. And so that was one example of me just doing things just naively because I thought I could and I did. So then when I got rejected from UCLA, I'd been getting straight A's for a while. Um, I started going to community college uh, and I went to Green River. It was such a great school. And um, then I continued to get A's and I thought, you know what, even with straight A's, there's a good chance I'm not going to get into UCLA unless I do something kind of radically different. Two mm-hmm. things I thought of. One was Africa popped to my mind right away. One, just because like I, as a kid, I loved giraffes, elephants, you know, animals, zebras. It's just, I wanted to see them with my own eyes. The second, which is a little more serious was in high school, in my history books, we learned a little about Africa and I read a book by Chinue Achebe called Things Fall Apart. And it had a whole different story about what happened in Africa, what Africa was all about. So I kind of wanted to see for it myself. And I decided that's it. I'm going to go to Africa. So I told my parents and they said, that's a great idea. Here's a bunch of money. Um, we'll see you in a few months. <laughs> no, that's not exactly not what happened. My parents said, no, you can't go. That's stupid. Um, and I decided, all right, I've got a mission now. I need to raise money to get there and convince my parents. So for eight months between 19 and 20 years old, I mowed lawns every weekend, all day long and every, you know, during the weekdays and the week in the evenings. So I mowed lawns to make money and I convinced my parents that it was a good idea to go, but I still couldn't afford to fly directly to Africa. The closest I could get was London. So I landed in London. <laughs> Pretty close. Yeah, right. <laughs> Stayed at a runaway shelter my first night there um, and hitchhiked my way down um, through Spain, you know, ended up in Spain and took the boat across from Gibraltar to Morocco and then over to Algeria and down through the Sahara and into Central Africa. But yeah, that was a really formative time for two main reasons. Three may, maybe. The 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 first is it gave me time to think. I spent so much time alone in my head. That was one. And I really love that time. I think the best compliment, one of the best compliments I've ever gotten in my life was I met a philosophy colloquium. Um, this is after Africa. And uh, there was, you know, a few students and uh, grad students and professors kind of chatting over cocktails and, and cheese and one of the professors, and we were just t- talking, and then one of the professors, he was an Iranian professor, long beard, you know, old, old, you know, stereotypical old wise man. And he looked at me, you know, kind of like as the group continued the conversation, and he said, you've had time to think. And I consider that one of the best oh, compliments wow. I've ever gotten because it's true. I, I had so much time for self-reflection. The second thing was overcoming fear because every night almost I walked massive stretches. Sometimes I'd look at my map 
and I would find a triangle in the map that had like dirt roads in a triangle where there's just a blank spot in the map with nothing in it. And I, so I said, okay, if, as long as I keep walking one direction, the furthest I can walk would be a hundred, hundred kilometers, 60 miles and just head out in the middle. And I'd find sometimes these, you know, a Berber tribe at one point, And it was just uh, amazing. But when I'm walking in the middle of nowhere like this, I just see a village, you know, at dusk off sometimes, sometimes I'd camp nowhere near anybody. And it was always frightening. Are they going to accept me? Where am I going to sleep? Am I going to find food? And always, almost people were really, really great in helping me. I'd either stay in my tent near in the village or somebody would let me stay in one of their huts. And it was just this beautiful experience. Not everybody was nice. I had knives pulled on me twice. I had rocks thrown at me. I had my, I was elbowed in the eye and I, I actually had a gun stuck in my mouth in Nigeria and that was kind of a pivotal point in my life about overcoming fear. The, the best part about Africa is continually overcoming fear every time I had to enter a village and be vulnerable to people. And I really realized that being vulnerable was a power because when I was vulnerable, people were excited to help me. If I walked in, yeah, I'm here. Um, where's a good place for me to sleep? And anybody, you got some food for me? That wouldn't have gone over well at all. But instead, these people who had almost nothing would go out of their way to find a place, the most comfortable spot for me to sleep on rugs in their hut. Or if they, or they would, you know, if they had say one chicken, they would slaughter it that day because they wanted to be able to give me food. And it was just such an amazing experience. But like I said, not everybody was great in Africa going into Nigeria. I couldn't go by myself. I had to go with a shared, a car. So I got, I hired a shared taxi. So it was me and six Africans in this little tiny car um, we crossed the border from Benin into Nigeria and that was scary in itself. It was just a really, it was like a car, it was like a plywood maze of people trying to get bribes and, you know, they, some, they stole some of my money when they counted the declaration form and it was just a nightmare. So I get through that. Then the car stopped about a kilometer in by a military checkpoint and they searched my bag. They want to bribe. It takes about an hour. Then another maybe mile, you know, kilometer, a mile away, another checkpoint, then another one. Then finally, the cab driver and the people in the car start yelling at each other. And I don't know what they're yelling at because it, it was a Bantu language. And then he just, what happened was they, he decided, the cab driver decided he's not going to stop at the next checkpoint because he's had enough. And so he sped up when we reached that checkpoint. One guy ran up and threw a spiked two-by-four across the road in front of us. It was a dirt road. And another guy's running behind us, shooting his gun in the air. And so now the car slides to a stop. As soon as we stop, the guy puts a gun to my head, pulls the guy who was just shooting, pulls me out of the car, puts me in a hut um, about, you know, 30 feet away from the side of the road. And then he's looking down at me, pointing the gun at my face. And he says, what are you doing here? And I'd been speaking French for six weeks in North and West Africa, but the common language in Nigeria is English. And so when he said, what are you doing here? I said, just we in tourist. Um, I'm a tourist in French. And that made him just fly into a rage. And he lit, he stuck the gun inside my mouth. And I could feel the warmth. The same gun that was fired a few seconds earlier than that. And so I was just, you know, paralyzed. After about an hour of, you know, yelling at me and things, my pack at this point has was strewn all over the, the hut. And after about an hour, he says, you know what? I don't think you're a spy. In fact, I like Americans because they give me gifts. <laughs> and he put my tents and my hunting knife in front of me to say, you keep one, I'm keeping the other as my gift. And so because there was a knife situation earlier where somebody came after me, I, I pulled, I took my knife and he took my tent. And it's kind of funny. So then we're in, back in the car driving away. 
and he came running out to stop us to make me get out and show him how to set up the tent. That was a that was kind of miserable. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. then that the the day wasn't even over. We get into Lagos then that evening. Getting into Lagos was frightening. It was just you know the area where the car park was. There was a few taxis and buses and just this dirt area in the middle of a bad area of Lagos. And then the cab driver wanted uh, a bribe to get my open the trunk to give me my pack. And I, ha- I gave him everything I had that wasn't hidden. And then so I'm standing there in the middle of this dirty car, car park. And one of the guys in the cab with us walks back towards me and he says, what are you going to do now? And I go, I'm going to go to the bank, exchange some money and get out of Lagos as quickly as possible. And he just shook his head and he said, today's Sunday. The banks are closed. If I don't take you home with me and he hadn't been home for five years and he said, if I don't take you home with me, you'll be dead before morning. And I didn't really have a choice. Oh, wow. And so I followed him. And then he had another plan um, where he knocked on somebody's door. And it was a friend he hadn't seen for five years. And he said, um, explain the situation. And that friend invited me in. And this is where, Michael, it just became beautiful. I ended up staying with this beautiful family, a husband, wife, these young kids. They fed me a ton. They told stories to me all the time. They took me around Lagos. So I just had this magical experience getting an interview of what life was like in Lagos um, by this beautiful family. And that's when I kind of created my number one motto of things work out. And I've, I've lived that to this day where anything bad happens. I, I see something good's here. It, maybe I don't see it yet, but there's something good here. And that's that, that was the first example of that. Wow. That's, I mean, in crazy, really. Um so, so much, so much there, but like you, like you talk about just realizing and, and to highlight too, like you mentioned, most of the people you interacted with were wonderful. Absolutely. Um, that's something that people, you know, kind of tend to think like, oh, it's all scary. Now, most people in most countries are very hospitable and very, very nice, depending on where, where you're going. But yeah, that's, that's a really crazy, crazy story. Can you talk about just also the aspect of overcoming fear and just a, a couple things that you learned in, in, in that arena around. Absolutely. The, I'm going to fast forward from that gun in the face day. And so then I'm, I'm back in America, I'm back at green river community college and a friend ran up to me with an application for a job and green river was starting a branch campus in Japan and they were looking for a student program specialist to go be part of the, 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 the opening of this campus. So I wanted this job so bad and I, I applied, got an interview and I learned some Japanese words so that I could, I could impress them. Um, I, I wore a suit for the first time in my life to, for an interview for a job. And then when I'm driving towards the interview, I felt this odd anxiety in my stomach and it just unsettling. And then when I was parking my car, my hands started shaking so much. I, I had a hard time locking the car with my key because I was so nervous. Then my hands started sweating and I, I started freaking out. I opened the door to where the interview was going to be. And all of a sudden, I couldn't remember the Japanese words that I had studied. Then I realized I couldn't remember anything. I was totally shell shock frozen. And my mind was just blank. And then, thank goodness, this voice in my head just said, you know what, Eric? Six weeks ago, you had a gun in your face. You know, you want this job. But in the big picture, it's not that big of a deal. And so I just felt I took a deep breath. And I felt totally calm. I wiped my hands off and I went in and I had a great interview and I ended up getting the job, but that never, ever left. So once I was in business and I'd have a big negotiation, for example, sometimes I'd fly to Europe and I'd be negotiating with, with a really high powered company. And I'm, I'm talking with the owners or the CEOs and, and things. And 
and it's just me and and I get nervous over these negotiations. And then that same voice is on now habit. It comes in, you know what, Eric, in the big picture, this isn't that big of a deal. You want this negotiation to go your way. You want to impress the owners back for ego out of the company I was working for at the time. But it's not that big of a deal in the big picture. And that totally creates this ease in me. If I do a big public speaking, I say the same thing. And public speaking is a little different because then what I do to overcome the fear is I shift my anxiety from thinking how good I'm going to look on camera so that I can promote myself for more speaking or how much I'm going to impress the CEO or the director who hired me. Instead, I focus on the value I can give to the, the listeners and I just the excitement that I get by giving them quality information. And as soon as I take that the thoughts away from myself and onto the audience in a positive way that makes that disappear. Um, and I practiced for a long time overcoming fear with little techniques. Like for example, a stupid one, which I learned from Tim Ferriss is asking for a discount. When I get my $2 25 cent double espresso at, at Starbucks, do you know, no reason. Can I have a, can I have 10% off on this? They usually just laugh. And sometimes they're like, sure, why not? You know, but it's not about the money. It's about me overcoming the fear over and over and over again by just doing something a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, that's, that's really important. Um, I, you know, as my listeners know, I, I sold books door to door two summers in, in college. And it's the same kind of thing. One similar lessons like you talked about, like people being your biggest resource, um, vulnerability too. But then also just that constant fear, constant rejection. And then you realizing you have the ability to regulate your emotions regardless of the, the circumstances. So that kind of that distinction there, um, like you were mentioning, um, really, really important. So I want to, I want to fast forward, um, a little bit. So you ended up, you know, kind of sticking it to the woman in this case, sticking it to the woman. You go to UCLA. Um, you're like, I yep. did it. Right. Um, and then, you know, later on, you're getting, you know, University of Virginia as well. You started studying anthropology. So I, I, I want you to talk about, um, and I know these are two separate stories, but you can kind of tie them together. So I want you to talk about 250 pounds of potatoes, um, drinking, drinking Kashiri and some boxer shorts. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, excellent. So as an undergrad, at, so I got into UCLA, I applied after two years of JC and I, I got into UCLA. So I went there and I studied anthropology. My progression for major went from psychology to philosophy to ended up in anthropology, which I'm really happy about. So then as an um, undergrad for at UCLA, I was accepted into this honors, um, undergrad honors program. And we had field research attached to it. And so I went down and I lived with the, th that time I lived with a, a tribe called the Aluku and they're a little closer to the coast in South America, along the border of Brazil, Suriname and French Guyana. That actually won best undergraduate research for that year at UCLA, which is kind of nice, um, with a big prize. Um, and then the next, then I took off a year and did a few things between grad school, but I went to grad school at university of Virginia and continued. I wanted to continue working that same area down in South America. So I decided to go deeper into the forest and live with the Wyana Indians. Only one person at that point, this is early nineties, only one person at that point had written about the Wyana and that was in French. And so I all by myself went down and the only way to get up to the, where the Indians are is through dugout canoe. And so I tried to get a ride by, from these people who transport supplies up river. And it was always no, 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 no. And so finally I'm like, I'm stuck. I mean, here I have got a, re a grant for research and, and I can't get up river to see the Indians I'm supposed to study. And so finally 
I negotiated with one guy who was going to transport supplies upriver. And that's like a two-week trip up the river. So I asked for five sacks of 50-pound potatoes is what I said I had. And, <laughs> and we negotiated the rate, and it was super great. And then he was ready to go right then. And the, the canoe was going out that day. So then we negotiated the rate and I paid him and I stepped into the canoe with my pack. And he's like, what are you doing? And I said, no. I said, that's the exact weight of me and my pack. I said, I have all my own food. I'm totally self-contained. And so he ended up letting me come with him. And so I ended up going up further. And it ended up to be a really neat experience. I was, I was helping unload because I got to – I had a reason to talk with all of the villages with these people because they were jumping off supplies. And it was usually food and, or other things and blankets and um, sometimes wood, two-by-fours and things like that for them to do things. So that got me up to this one area called Maripasula. And then Maripasula is the checkpoint where beyond that is where the Wayana territory is. And that's an administrative checkpoint where I had to have government permission to enter because it's restricted to keep the Indians um, safe from disease and also safe from exploitation. So at that point, I ended up in Maripasula and um, there's a French doctor there stationed there because this is in French Guyana, right on the border of the river, the Maroni River on the border of um, Suriname and, and French Guyana. And the doctor goes in to give the Indians medicine once a month and things work out. My number one motto, he happened to be leaving the next day with a Wayana translator. And so um, the next day I got in his canoe with him. So it was me, the doctor and this other Indian a translator. And we go up into a few villages. We finally get pretty deep up into a village called Coyote. And the doctor asked the chief if I could stay with the Wayana. And the chief said yes. And it happened to be during a, a festival called a Ta'akai. And what happens is the the old women chew up this, this root <laughs> called manioc, cassava, same thing. And they chew it up <laughs> and get lots of saliva in it. And then they spit it into these carved out wooden vats and let it sit in it ferments into a mildly alcoholic beverage called Erkashiri. <laughs> and so I, I was during one of these festivals and they don't even eat it, it, The festival lasts until they invite other villages. It lasts until all the Kashiri has gone and then everybody goes home. So I was there like day one of this Kashiri festival and, um, they, they, you know, we, we start drinking it right away and there's no saying no. I didn't know what it was at the time, which is, I think is a great thing. So I had, I had drunk mass quantities of this before I figured out what it was. But so it was just a great introduction to be, you know, drinking with these Indians the first day. So the, the, the next morning I go to sleep, actually I was, I was away for, you know, almost the whole night, finally go to sleep. And the next day I wake up in, in the middle of the day and I brought with me seven pairs of boxer shorts because I thought that was a great, you know, seven days of the week, right. It makes a perfect, great number. Um, I wake up the next day and I see six Indians wearing boxer shorts and I'm wearing the other, the seventh pair myself. <laughs> and they wore them for a few days because there's no, they weren't stealing. There's no private ownership among the Wayana. And so for them, just, you, you know, I have seven, why would I need seven pairs of, you know, something to wear? And they wore them for a few days and then they just kind of disappeared. <laughs> but I thought that was hilarious, but they went through my entire pack while I was sleeping. Didn't, you know, I had, I had knives, I had, you know, other thing, cameras, other things, and they didn't bother with anything other than to my underwear that because i of course didn't need seven pairs of underwear <laughs> intro to anthropology 101 yeah absolutely <laughs> that is that's crazy i read that story and i was like what is going on <laughs> yeah and so it was it was a really wild thing and also just how as humans we we shift so much 
So living with them, I became really, it was, it was hard to separate, you know, my normal, you know, my, my thoughts back in the States with all of the busyness and everything. And then getting into, you know, with the Indians where it's just the pace is so much different. They don't even, they don't talk a, a ton in general. There's, there are no walls on the huts there for the Wayana. There are just four poles with a thatched roof. And so learning to deal with having absolutely zero privacy and then even using the bathroom you usually wade into the river and you just go to the bathroom in the river waist deep number one and number two and so it's it's like so you're never alone um and that got really weird after a few weeks i started really feeling this odd sensation and i couldn't really go into the forest alone you going into the jungle alone's really tricky because you can you can literally be a hundred yards away from the village and get lost um if you don't know exactly where, where where you're at and so it was a real weird sensation too and then i finally adapted and got used to it so much so that when i left the i was there three months twice so six months total um when i left the wayana there's a, the, a family living in cayenne that i met um earlier that i stayed with after i i, I got out and two things i was excited about was a bed because I didn't sleep in a bed for six months, three months total. And then a, a, <laughs> a shower, a hot shower, because we would bathe in the creek and it was just a ice shocking, cold, you know, shower, shower every day. So then the first thing I did, I take my long, long, hot shower. I turn off the water and I start drying myself off. And then I'm like, I don't feel clean. So my body had adjusted that shock of cold water equated itself as clean. So I turned on the cold water and I had to rinse myself off. And then I'm laying in the bed I couldn't sleep for about three or four nights because I was so used to the, the hammock because we were in a hammock every night. The hammock is just so, you know, it's like a little cocoon. So spread out in the bed, it was a real hard thing adjusting to be able, able to sleep in a, a normal bed. And one last thing that happened, we're in Cayenne. The, the son of the family is driving me somewhere. I don't remember where we're going. And a big iguana started crossing the road. And just instinctively, because with the Indians, wherever you're moving, you're hunting. Your eyes are scanning all the time, whether you're in the canoe, whether you're walking, because um, food is, if you don't kill food, you, you don't eat that day. And so I instinctively just said, hit it with the car, <laughs> hit the iguana with the car. And he looked at me and he goes, you've been with the Indians way too long. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, yeah. There's stories, stories for days yep. in there. Let's let's move on a little bit. Um, you just have so much, so much in your in your life. Um, let's talk a little bit about about motorcycles and transitioning into into business as well. I mean, you ended up teaching English for you know quite a while, and then at the same time, you're you're starting your own you know business. And can you talk about that and kind of the subsequent years yeah. after that? Yeah, I I definitely, and I'm gonna actually transition into business with the Wayana still because I saw something that was so impressive. I couldn't believe it. And that was the leadership style. So the Wayana, mm. like I said, there's no private ownership. They're a totally egalitarian tribe. The chief has no people, people listen to him because they respect him, but he has no enforceable power. Also, there are no social rules. There are taboos. So for example, for the Wayana, if you eat in Jaguar, that's one of their taboos, the nature is going to punish you. If you do certain things, nature is going to punish you. But you could you could do something to, to, that that everybody thinks is bad, but they don't care because it's not their job to punish. It's up to, it, nature will will punish. But the leadership was what I found crazy interesting. So the chief of the Wayana, um, when if he thought in the olden days, I heard stories of, and I didn't witness this part, that if sometimes if the chief would thought it was a good idea to go to war with the next village, 
he would pick up his bow and arrow and start walking towards the village. If the other members of the tribe thought it was a good idea, they would pick up their bows and follow him. If not, they wouldn't, and he would just go die alone. But what I did see is the chief of the Wyana would decide they have slash and bring agriculture that he would decide, okay, the garden needs to be hoed. So he would pick up their little wooden instrument that they use to dig up weeds and he would go out and just start hoeing. Next thing you know, one person joins him. Next thing you know, you have 10 people out there hoeing the thing. He didn't tell one single person, hey, I think it's a great idea today. Let's go weed the garden. He picked up his hoe, went out and started weeding the garden. And by 45 minutes later, you've got 10 people. The village is only 60 people. So 10 is a big chunk of the village out there weeding the garden. And it was just such a beautiful thing to see. And I, I, th I think that is a, a su success engineered, is leading by example and having people follow you, not because they have to, but because they decide your idea is a great, great idea. And so for my leadership and with my employ the employees who work for me at Eagle Rider and also for my own companies, I tried to mimic that a little bit where I would definitely, I wouldn't ask them to do anything I wouldn't want to do myself for one. And I would try and lead by, by example. And it was, it was, it was just brilliant. So what was the next part you wanted me to get into? Was it motorcycles or? Yeah. Well, I mean, they kind of tied, tied together. So you, you, you end up creating this company and then, it, and then you sell the ride free motorcycles mm -hmm. and become after a number of years, the vice president of this multi-million dollar um, corporation, Eagle Riders. But I'm curious also too, like, where did the love of you know, because that motorcycles is that thread. Where did that love kind of come from? Um, and then you also have some really nuts stories around motorcycle experience. Yeah. So I, I'm glad you asked the question of where it originated. I mentioned how ice hockey people said I couldn't play hockey. So I but, but I just took it as a challenge. I did it. Another thing that I wanted to do was ride my bicycle, my pedal bike from Tacoma to Los Angeles. So it's Washington State to Los Angeles. Um, when I was 16 or 17. And so I think, I think I had the idea 16 and I rode when I was 17 or even 18. So I rode part of the way down with a friend, but he was in the military reserves. He was a Marine. And so he got called in for the Marines halfway through. So he, he had to get picked up. And so here I am, I think I might've been just 18, 17 or 18. And so I'm riding alone every day, um, on this two week trip from, you know, Seattle to down to Los Angeles. And so there was hiker biker camps for $1. If you were on two feet or a pedal bike, you could stay in the campground for a dollar. So I stayed at those. And at one of the campgrounds I had the, the, the hiker biker section was full. So they said, Hey, just take any of the spots down near the end. You know, we got some spots down there. So I ride my pedal bike down there, set up my tent, get my fire going. And all of a sudden I heard this rumble and it was just this thunderous rumble coming closer and closer and closer. And next thing you know, the Hell's Angels pull in. It was a van and probably 15 or 20 bikes. And they just, you know, pull in and they took over the two campsites right next to me. And we're down at the end. So it's just me and them and no, but nobody else. And I'm freaked <laughs> out, right? I'm sitting there roasting a hot dog. And all of a sudden, two of them start walking over towards me. Big giants, you know, spikes on them, leather, big beards. And they stop right at my fire. And then one of them says, can I have a hot dog? <laughs> so, so I'm like, sure. <laughs> and so I broke off a branch and I gave him a branch and they could give him a hot dog. And suddenly I'm roasting hot dogs with these two Hells Angels. And they were just chatting. And it was just the coolest thing in the world for them, you know, you're talking with me. Then that night they had like a big, huge roast pig and they were just partying and stuff. And just the, the camaraderie I saw 
did something to me and they invited me over and it's kind of funny the next day the next morning they were going to like four in the morning and then they were all up at six thirty-seven, just same time i was getting up and the, it was really funny one of the biker chicks asked if she could keep me <laughs> and, and then that, as, she, as this woman as this you know probably 35 or 40 year old woman is hugging me and I'm basically a little kid with her black bikini on asking if she could keep me. That was pretty fun. (laughs) But I, but I totally fell in love with what I saw with that camaraderie and it didn't go away. And so years later I, I ended up buying Harley and I ended up getting really pretty heavily involved into the outlaw bike community. And, um, it was a really, really good experience. A lot of, a lot of things happen. There are a few things that happen that I'm totally not proud of at all. Um, there are pl- there are situations I put myself in way too much danger. It was just really irresponsible looking back. I'm, I'm glad it happened, but I'm glad nothing. I'm glad I, ca- I literally can't count on both hands how many times I should have something really, really bad should have happened and it didn't. So I kind of escaped great. But it was it was really neat also to be part of that culture. And there's there was also particularly um, among you know the the HAs I spent quite a bit of time with they there was such a uh, it's almost a romantic chivalry to some of it. And, you know, there are bad people in every group. So I'm not saying they're all great people. There are bad people in every single group. But there was de- just a code that, like, for example, if I'm in a fraternity party and I bump somebody's shoulder, you bump me. No, you bump me. You bump me. And they're, oh, yeah, back and forth, ready to fight, right? You bump somebody at a, Ange- a Hell's Angel swap mate, for example, both people generally immediately say, oh, I'm sorry. No, it's my fault. It's my fault. And they're so polite because they have ball ping hammers on their on their you know belts, and they're willing to have justice right there. They're not going to wait for justice from anybody. And being in situations like that, or being in another outlaw club clubhouse, you're a hundred percent defined by your own actions, and you're also a hundred percent responsible for yourself because nobody's going to protect you in, in in the if you put yourself in situations like this. And I really enjoyed that that self defining and you know having to be responsible for yourself as well. And it makes us, if you're smart, a really humble person because being super cocky in a situation like that wouldn't necessarily go over well, especially if you're not a patched in member, which right. I wasn't. Um, can, can you talk about how your uh, training and experience in martial arts kind of helped you um, during that, that period of time? There was one, one situation where horribly, um, I knew one guy at this new, this other club, um, that is in Los Angeles. And so I was invited to their clubhouse. And so right when we get in there, so I'm, I, I'm being introduced to these heavy hitters. as like the, 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 the president of the East LA chapter, all these other, you know, big hitters in the club. And he kept introducing me as the motorcycle guy and the martial arts expert. <laughs> and so I knew for <laughs> sure somebody's going to say, oh, martial arts expert, let's see what you got, right? So, um, and, and in the end, I was challenged twice. Um, one, one time it was a guy just seeing if I belonged there. And, and he, 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 he slapped me. I was walking. I finally got comfortable. First thing he did is he said, put on a club T-shirt just to a support shirt just to let them know, you know, that, that you know, you're, you're here. You got that on your side. Um, so I, yeah, I became more comfortable and, and I mean, even going in to get into the club, you have to pass these iron gates, which have probably a nine inch opening that you slide through. And then they frisk every, every inch of your body. My friend told me not to bring any weapons, which I didn't. I normally had a knife at that point. And so, um, I'm in the club and starting to feel comfortable. I'm walking in to go to the bar to buy a, a beer and, and there was a massive slap on my shoulder and I turn around there's this giant with two AK 47s tattooed on his neck, two cronies next to him. And, and he just looked at me meanly and I, and, and I looked at him straight in the eye back 
and I didn't look threatening, but I didn't look scared. And then he's like, hi, man, how are you doing? I was just seeing if you belong here, you know, and he didn't say that actually. He just, that's what he was doing. He was seeing, he goes, let me go buy you a beer. And he walked me up, but he was saying if he, if I wanted to fight, if I looked threatening, he would have loved to just kick my ass just because, you know, he, he's done it a bunch of times and why not do it another one? But he, and if I looked scared, he would have loved to just chase me out of the, out of the, out of the clubhouse and say, you know, you don't belong silly man go back to where you belong um but having that even killed eyes of not threatening but also not scared he welcomed me in and it was really he suddenly this this guy was we were we were bonded somehow but um but it got a a little sketchy when one guy kind of flipped out there there are sociopaths in every situation and he he was ready to kill me and luckily it didn't it didn't get to that because I changed the subject and started asking him questions about what the big tattoo on his neck was. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, if people want to actually check out, I mean, he has, um, Eric has these incredible books. He has explore, he has ordinary to extraordinary, um, and a whole host of other ones that cover everything from business to just the crazy experiences he has. Cause these stories just are t- touching the tip of the iceberg in terms of the, the things that he has. So definitely go check that out. Um, following just that, that thread of just kind of confronting fear and overcoming it and working through it. Can you talk about, I mean, it's, it's another kind of thread that's been through your life is just that, that desire to summit mountains Mm -hmm. and what that, what that means to you. And when, when that also started to, and I mean, you have a trip coming up here in in January as well. Um, Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. And, and it started, I did rock climbing and things a little bit. So I always loved the outdoors. I hiked and things and I did rock climbing when I was young and I was where I worked at an orphanage in India in 2012 um, for two weeks. And then a friend of mine who used to teach at UCLA with me, his um, in-laws were from Nepal. And so he was always talking about the beautiful, beautiful culture of Nepal, how I had to see Kathmandu. There's no way I should go to that region without seeing Kathmandu. So I, I flew to Nepal. And as I was flying from, um, I, I was going from Calcutta to Nepal, um, to Kathmandu. And I'm looking at the window and I can't my brain's trained to process what I'm looking at. I couldn't see, I couldn't tell, figure out what it was. And then it just came clear what it was. And it was Mount Everest sticking out above the clouds. All the clouds were, seemed low compared to that. And it, it was just shocking. And it just sent chills through my, my body. And for some reason, since literally that moment, I've just wanted to climb mountains. So I got to Kathmandu, spent some great time there. And I just loved the culture and everything. But I started climbing mountains. And it was, it was, Mount Rainier was the first one I attempted. And I attempted a few times and finally made it. And subsequently did, you know, Mount Hood and Mount Adams and, and Mount, um, I haven't done Shasta yet. So most of the volcanoes up, up in Washington and in California, Mount Whitney, the highest in the lower 48. But as I climbed, I realized it's just like business. It, we, it's the same tools you know, I have to engineer success for the climb, just like I have engineer success for my, my company because it takes planning. Um, it takes reading all about the mountain. It takes, you know, maps and, and details of like that. It also takes the right equipment and it takes the right people. And it can't, I can't do it alone, especially when there are crevasses in, involved and we have to rope up. And so I loved that that just became almost, uh, the same buzz I got from business. But the difference is I could get that buzz of either failure or success on a two and a half day climb of Mount Rainier that takes two and a half years in business. And so I just kept going and going. And like, like you said, it was like, I think it's 15, 15, um, countries in, in 17 States. 
and, and then two continents as well. And so as the challenges, I'd, I'd do one challenge, just like business, I'd, I'd figure out what's the next challenge. So the, the highest mountain I've done so far is Mount Elbrus. It's the highest in Europe, and it's in Russia, along the border of Georgia and Russia. And I actually did that with Chris McIntyre, one of the founders of Eagle Rider. Um, he's a super, super amazing guy. And he, more than anybody I've seen in my whole life, believe and achieve is one of his, the things he says all the time. And I've, I've objectively seen it, that if you believe it, True enough, it's it, it's going to happen. It's a mind blowing. So so he went with me for that, and um, then my next one coming up, and I'm going to go back to that one to talk about that for a second. But my next one coming up is Aconcagua in South America. So I'll leave January 6th and come back February 1st because um, there's 21 days, 20 days just on the mountain because it's 23,000 feet and it's the highest mountain outside of the Himalaya. Um, on, on the Argentina side near the border of Chile. So I look forward to getting down there for that. And the same thing, it's the challenge. It's all of the planning, the preparation, and the the, the conditioning that, that you have to do. And it's the same thing, same things I, I need to do in business. But on Mount Elbrus, I also had to come be confronted with something I'm not used to, and that was failure. Because generally, I mentioned all of these things that I thought were possible, and I made them happen. And so now I fly out halfway around the world. I've been training for over six months. Me and Chris, we uh, start climbing the mountain and we have a guide, a Russian guide. And so we go through this massive storm and it's negative 30 degrees. I didn't know it yet, but I had frostbite and we get up and we're 170 meters from the summit of the highest point in Europe. And all of a sudden lightning strikes and we stopped. And then about 90 seconds later, lightning struck again. And our guide said, we go down now. And I'm like, the summit is a hundred and you know, it's just right there. And no negotiation. Cause there's nothing for the lightning to strike. We've got our crampons metal on our feet and ice axes metal on our hands. And so we trucked down and the weather was bad, bad, bad and worse. And so, but Chris and I, we were with a few other people, the other people, one of them dropped out like on day one, we were eight days on the mountain. One of them dropped out on about day four. Um, and then the last one dropped out that day. So they all left the mountain and Chris and I looked at each other and said, we can stay here uh, or go back. And if we go back, we're never going to forgive ourselves because we had still two days before we had to get to Moscow and fly home. And so uh, three days to Moscow, two days in the mountain. And so Chris and I waited it out, waited the storm out um, down lower, of course. But all of a sudden there was in the weather report said bad, bad, bad and worse, like I said. But suddenly there was a break in weather. But before that, I had to totally be confronted that I flew around the whole world. I had told a lot of people I'm going to try and climb this mountain. I'm going to have to go back and tell them I failed. And that beca- that was really difficult for me to to handle at, at because, you know, I, I especially telling people the money that I spent and the flying across the, the world, that was even less important to me than having to tell all these people that I didn't make the mountain. And I finally just became totally at peace. All right, that's what it is. And as soon as I became at peace with that, um, I, I really felt this wonderful sensation of the people that I would talk to and myself and and everything. But thank God there was a break in the weather. And so we ended up trucking up and getting the summit 48 hours after that. So we, le- we left at like <clears throat> one, I think, in the morning and got to summit at eight and down before the next storm crept in. Um, so, so that was just a wonderful experience, but the big lesson on that one was failures, right? 
you know, possible for anything. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I interviewed, you know, a fellow who holds the world record for the transatlantic row. So him and a friend rode 3000 miles across the Atlantic and he had failed the first time for just a crazy number of reasons. And the second time him and his friend are like right on the world record. And he had to confront that same kind of thing, go, if I finish this 3,000 mile row, but I don't beat the world record, will I be okay with myself? Uh-huh. Basically, yep. um, which is a crazy thing to confront. Um, and they ended up beating the world record only by like 14 minutes, wow. which in a 3,000 3, mile row, is like absolutely nothing. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a crazy story. And I like that you're talking about that in terms of a lot of that internal stuff that happens when you are when you're living, living on the edge. So, I mean, with, with all the crazy stuff that you've done, I'm actually really curious. I mean, you're, you're a father and I'm just curious of what like parenting looks like for you in terms of there are things that you've done that added so much wonder and solitude and, you know, being able to think and so much just um, excitement and connection. And then there's also things that, you know, you even said that you regret and there was kind of like too far and too dangerous. How do you go about presenting that to your kids? Like, you know, that balance between just freedom and exploration and then going like, let's actually be sensible about it. I'm, I'm really curious to hear. That's a really good question. And I've actually really wondered how, even when my kids were really young, now they're 15 and 16 years old, even when they were really young, I wondered how I would uh, approach that because I have done ext- extreme things. And so they and we live in Los Angeles, a nice little neighborhood in Los Angeles. You know, we we have our church and they have their church friends. We have their school and it's a public school, but they have it's a pretty uh, insular school. It's a little our little bubble, and I don't want them to grow up in that bubble. So I intentionally push them out mild things. For example, I'll say, "Hey guys, let's sleep outside tonight, just to remind ourselves that how comfortable our beds are. Let's not use warm water for a week, just to remind ourselves." how comfortable warm water is. Let's not eat for a day. Let's fast for a day. So we, I, we do that two or three times a year. Um, but also for the extreme things, I want them to be out of their bubble. So a few years ago when they were like 12 and 13, no, probably 13 and 14, um, I took them to a Black Flag punk rock concert and they saw their first adult fist fight. They saw people, you know, <laughs> just going nuts in, in the mosh pit. They saw a guy climb up on the stage and fall 30 feet. <laughs> and so they saw things that were way outside of their bubble. And then just a few weeks ago, I took them to the Dead and Company show, the Grateful Dead minus Jerry Garcia, basically. And so they could see what that scene was like. So they they saw somebody passed out, you know, next to us three feet away and then three people tripping out or taking a nap, whatever they were doing, and then tripping on acid, you know, 30 feet away. And so they got to see that not everybody is like all, all of their friends. And, and, and then for like with the, the adventures, um, I, there are a few sketchy moments I I was on rock climbing that, that kind of scare me, but I encourage them to just be safe and do it. But I take them on like this last summer, the boys climbed with me on the highest peak of Colorado, the highest peak in Nevada, the highest peak in Arizona. So they've done some serious climbs, like totally roughing at climbs with me. The only thing that I, I, I don't care if they ride motorcycles and I don't care if they hang out with outlaws, that's fine with me. But, um, I got myself into some situations that were too far. Um, there was a few years where I was, I was so heavily involved that it was, I wouldn't want them to be at that point, you know, where knives are involved for no ridiculous reasons and things. And so that, that was a little, a little beyond the boundary. I think that I'd like them to to push it, but I encourage them and they know it to 
not be totally in the center. I want them to be grounded. I want them to have a moral compass. I want them to be good to people. Um, I want them to be kind and thankful. But at the same time, I do want them to be on more of the edge of the boundaries of what people think is normal than right in the center. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that because, you know, my kids, my kids are younger and I, I've thought about that and I haven't done any, anywhere near the crazy things that you have, you have done. But I appreciate you talking about that. And it's also interesting because a lot of times during those different transitions, they, they may explore kind of those fringe behaviors and stuff anyway. And you're, you're going like, let me be there with you mm-hmm. and we can talk about it mm-hmm. and we can experience it together rather than it just being like a, hidden thing or a shameful thing. And then it's like, they're doing it behind your back where it's like, no, you're right. Like I'm right there, but let's talk about this and what, what thoughts that you bring up around that. So yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is, it's, it is such a wonderful thing. Like you said, to be able to share our experiences with our kids. Um, I definitely don't live vicariously through them because we are sharing it, which is, which is great. Um, and, and, and I love though to be, and I think a positive example to them as much as possible. And it's just a blast. I think having, having kids every single day, every single year, I should say from year one till now 15 to 16 has been for me more fun than, than, than the last. And, and I loved it at the start. Mm-hmm. And seven was great. Eight was great. 10 was great. Now 15, 16 is just wonderful. That's awesome. And this kind of ties, you know, ties into that on a, on a bigger, bigger level, but I'm curious for you, what would, um, what would success look like for you personally? And then if you want to answer, if it's different than the question I just asked, if you want to answer what that looks like as a, a parent or, you know, you can take it whatever way, you know, even as a business, business owner, business leader, what would, what would you say? successes. The quick answer is, I think, just being a good person to other, mainly saying that is means to other people, helping other people, when, when, when helping other people becomes more important than doing things for yourself. I think that's a, a, a great thing. And Zig Ziglar talked about that. There's a quote I love. He goes, you can have anything in life you want if only you help enough other people get what they want. And I, I live by that. And it's almost like, you know, it just, it just comes back in waves of this, this beauty of sharing positivity with people. And then it comes back. So for my kids, success is that they're good people. And, and that could be a good person on the edge. If they want to be right in the dead center of everything, that's a good, that's great for them too. They, they, that is their choice. For me, success is waking up every day and feeling excited to get to the things I'm doing. And that could be owning a company worth millions of dollars. That's a successful person. But it could be somebody who has a lot of debt and a great idea. But as long as they're excited to wake up the next day and get work towards that idea, they are equally successful as the person with a $100 million company. There's no difference in who's better in the success you know, paradigm, if you call it, um, but because they're on the exact same path. And so, And I love that. So going towards it. And then happiness also, I think, is just simply a choice. I, I use an analogy. Happiness is like a backpack. We either decide to put that backpack on or we don't. And, you know, I've always got people with some story of why they can't put on the happiness backpack because it's so bad. And, you know, I refute that by saying, no, like I'm the myth of Sisyphus, you know, it, ro- rolling a rock up and down a hill for eternity. As long as he's conscious, no matter how heavy and how miserable it is pushing that rock, he can choose his, you know, whether he's happy or not. And I kind of think success is the same thing. Um, you don't have to have a great job. You don't have to have a lot of money to be successful, but at the same time, I think that idea of working towards and making other people and the world a better place is is really positive. Mm. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that, you know, pairing that with the, 
excitement to mm-hmm. be doing what you're what you're doing. Um, yeah, I, I really like that. The other thing too, and this is kind of just a, a attack on question. I know you have a, you know, library of over like 3000 books and you've read just a, an un, unreal amount. I'm curious, what are some of, you know, two to three top books that you, that you recommend that either really shaped you or, or you feel like, you know, are things that you'd want to have your kids learn or what are, what are some that come to mind? The man search for me, meaning by Viktor Frankl really pops to mind. I read that in my early 20s and then I read it again this last year and it both times it impacted me in totally different ways. Another one, the the little prints, especially if you're talking about my kids, I I, I would re- highly recommend that one. Um just same thing, the eyes wide open. And very similar theme to that is Paolo Cello's the the what is the alchemist. Yeah, the alchemist. Um and then getting into some of the you know development books. Tim Ferriss's four hour week week a work week. A friend of mine recommended that to me and I read it and I decided to test it. So I literally two months after reading his book had an LLC registered and and I kept a little documentation of what was happening. And basically within a two years, I had left my the, my company. Um, I had, I, I was a hundred percent full-time with my own company, no, no safety net. And so that's a great book to, to inspire people and to, to see possibilities. Then there, there's a great book called the power of meaning by Emily Esfahani Smith. And that's another one that just talks about how meaning to people is based on pillars of belonging, storytelling, transcendence, and purpose. If we have those things in our life, we're going to feel meaning in our life, which is more important than having happiness. Happiness is basically a result of having meaning in our lives. Yeah, appreciate that. Those are, yeah, I've read a number of them. There's a couple that, you know, doing the research, I was like, oh, I want to read that. The one on meaning is definitely one that I haven't read, but it looked, it looked really good. But yeah, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate your, um, your time and your stories there really great and paired with the insights and stuff that you have. Is there anything that you want to say or or tell the audience here before we wrap up? No, just that I'm happy to have been here. Uh, it was actually fun for me to share a few of these stories. I, I don't think about them very often. So it's always fun when they pop up. Um, they are in in the books, as you mentioned. Um, my website is the easiest place to get a hold of me, ericseverson.com. And also, I am a person who believes in connections. So if anybody does want to reach out um, connect directly. I would be happy to have that connection on LinkedIn, on email, and also my website. There's a challenge, a, a, a extraordinary habits challenge. I, I looked at what successful thought leaders, professional sports people, billionaires, and I kind of got this from Tim Ferriss too, and a few others, David Schwartz, but um, the Magic of Thinking book. That that what do habits do they have? And I created a habits challenge that basically mimics the ten habits of extraordinary people. Um, and then there's ten like lifestyle tips that are good. And it's a 25 page PDF that's free download on my website. If anybody wants to take that little challenge to find some um, positivity in your life with real small minor changes. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, you provided tremendous value in in your life to tons of people through what you do. And um, it's just, it's a privilege to have you on the show. Thank you, Michael. I absolutely love being here and I love what you're doing. You've got such a great message and I can't wait to learn more about you. We talked a lot about me today. I look, look forward to learn more about you as I listen to more of your shows. Absolutely. 